Have you ever received a call or text from a number that you don't know saying that a package you ordered hasn't been delivered because they need just a little bit more information from you? You don't remember ordering a package and then start wondering how this scammer got your number. Well, anytime you go online and accept cookies or buy anything online, websites can keep your data and sell it to data brokers who create a digital ID of you. They can sell this digital ID to the highest bidder, and lo and behold, a bunch of scammers get a ton of information about you that you never agreed to give them. Well, with Ecogni, this is no longer an issue. All you need to do is sign up, and Ecogni will use the GDPR and CCPA and other privacy laws to get these companies to remove your data from their networks, protecting you and your data from scammers and anyone else who wants to use your data against you. Use the link in the description or episode notes and get Ecogni today for $6.49 a month on a one-year plan and protect your data and digital ID. Between the essential reads and the English essentials, I spend a lot of time writing scripts. Now, I could do this from home, but it's a lot nicer to get out of the house and work in a coffee shop or a cafe. I could use my phone data to check articles and research for my scripts, but that can get expensive fast. It's so much easier to use the Wi-Fi at my favourite coffee shops. Well, thanks to Surfshark VPN, I don't have to worry about public Wi-Fi networks stealing my data. I simply choose from one of their 3,200 plus servers in 100 countries and continue working without having to worry about anyone stealing my data. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 a month on a two-year plan and work worry-free wherever you please. Hello and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. This show is brought to you by my store, where you can purchase all of my audiobooks after completion here on YouTube for €5. It is one of the easiest ways to support me in turning this not just from a hobby, but into my full-time job. Um, So it would really mean the world if you could support me there. Let's get started. The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne Chapter 17 The Pastor and His Parishioner Slowly as the minister walked, he had almost gone by before Hester Prynne could gather her voice enough to attract his observation. At length, she succeeded. Arthur Dimmesdale, she said, faintly at first, then louder, but hoarsely. Arthur Dimmesdale! Who speaks? answered the minister. Gathering himself quickly up, he stood more erect, like a man taken by surprise in a mood to which he was reluctant to have witnessed. Throwing his anxious eyes in the direction of the voice, he instinctively beheld a form under the trees, clad in garments so sombre and so little relieved from the grey twilight into which the clouded sky and heavy foliage had darkened the noontide, that he knew not whether it were a woman or a shadow. It may be that his pathway through life was haunted thus by a spectre that had stolen out from among his thoughts. He made a step nigher and discovered the scarlet letter. Hester! Hester Prynne! said he. Is it thou? Art thou in life? Even so, she answered, in such life as has been mine these seven years past. And thou, Arthur Dimmesdale, dost thou yet live? It was no wonder that they thus questioned one another's actual and bodily existence, and even doubted of their own. So strangely did they meet in the dim wood that it was like the first encounter in the world beyond the grave of two spirits who had been intimately connected in their former life but now stood coldly, shuddering in mutual dread, as not yet familiar with their state 
nor wanted to the companionship of disembodied beings. Each a ghost, and awe-stricken at the other ghost. They were awe-stricken likewise at themselves, because the crisis flung them back to their consciousness and revealed to each other's heart its history and experience, as life never does, except at such breathless epochs. The soul beheld its features in the mirror of the passing moment. It was with fear, and tremulously, and, as it were, by a slow, reluctant necessity, that Arthur Dimmesdale put forth his hand, chill as death, and touched the chill hand of Hester Prynne. The grasp, cold as it was, took away what was dreariest in the interview. They now felt themselves, at least, inhabitants of the same sphere. Without a word more spoken, neither he nor she assuming the guidance, but with an unexpressed consent, they glided back into the shadow of the woods whence Hester had emerged, and sat down on the heap of moss where she and Pearl had been before sitting. When they found voice to speak, it was, at first, only to utter remarks and inquiries such as any two acquaintances might have made about the gloomy sky, the threatening storm, and, next, the health of each. Thus they went onward, not boldly, but step by step, into the themes that were brooding deepest in their hearts. So long estranged by fate and circumstances, they needed something slight and casual to run before and throw open the doors of intercourse, so that their real thoughts might be led across the threshold. After a while, the minister fixed his eyes on Hester Prynne's. Hester, said he, hast thou found peace? She smiled drearily, looking down upon her bosom. Hast thou? she asked. None. Nothing but despair, he answered. What else could I look for, being what I am, and leading such a life as mine? Were I an atheist, a man devoid of conscience, a wretch with coarse and brutal instincts, I might have found peace longer now. Nay, I should never have lost it. But, as matters stand with my soul, whatever of good capacity there originally was in me, all of God's gifts that were the choicest have become the ministers of spiritual torment. Esther, I am most miserable. The people reverence thee, said Hester, and surely thou workest good amongst them. Dost this bring thee no comfort? More misery, Esther, only more misery, answered the clergyman with a bitter smile. As concerns the good which I may appear to do, I have no faith in it. It must needs be a delusion. What can a ruined soul like mine effect towards the redemption of other souls, or a polluted soul towards their purification? And as for the people's reverence, would that it were turned to scorn and hatred. Canst thou deem it, Hester, a consolation that I must stand up in my pulpit and meet so many eyes turns upwards to my face as if the light of heaven were beaming from it? Must see my flock hungry for the truth and listening to my words as if the tongue of a Pentecost were speaking, and then look inward and discern the black reality of what they idolise? I have laughed in bitterness and agony of heart at the contrast between what I seem and what I am, and Satan laughs at it. You wrong yourself in this, said Hester, gently. You deeply and sorely repented. 
your sin is left behind you in the days long past. Your present life is not less holy in very truth than it seems in people's eyes. Is there no reality in the penitence thus sealed and witnessed by good works? And wherefore shall it not bring you peace? No, Hester, no, replied the clergyman. There is no substance in it. It is cold and dead and can do nothing for me. Of penance? I've had enough. Of penance? There has been none else I should long ago have thrown off these garments of mock holiness and have shown myself to mankind as they will see me at judgment seat. Happy are you, Hester, that wear the scarlet letter openly upon your bosom. Mine burns in secret. Thou little knowest what relief it is after the torment of seven years' cheat to look into an eye that recognises me for what I am. Had I one friend, or were it my worst enemy, to whom, when sickened with the praises of all other men, I could daily betake myself and be known as the vilest of all sinners. Methinks my soul might keep itself alive thereby. Even thus much of truth would save me. But now, it is all falsehood, all emptiness, all death. Hester Prynne looked into his face, but hesitated to speak. Yet, uttering his long-restrained emotions so vehemently as he did, his words here offered her the very point of circumstances in which to interpose what she had come to say. She conquered her fears and spoke. Such a friend as thou hast even now wished for, said she, with whom to weep over thy sin, thou hast in me the partner of it. Again she hesitated but brought out the words with an effort. Thou hast long had such an enemy, and dwellest with him under the same roof. The minister started to his feet, gasping for breath and clutching at his heart as if he would have torn it out of his bosom. <laughs> what sayest thou? cried he. An enemy? And under mine own roof? What mean you? Hester Prynne was now fully sensible of the deep injury for which she was responsible to this unhappy man in permitting him to lie for so many years, or indeed for a single moment, at the mercy of one whose purposes could be none other than malevolent. The very contiguity of his enemy, beneath whatever mask the latter might conceal himself, was enough to disturb the magnetic sphere of a being so sensitive as Arthur Dimmersdale. There had been a period when Hester Prynne was less alive to this consideration, or perhaps, in the misanthropy of her own trouble, she left the minister to bear with what she might picture herself as a more tolerable doom. But of late, since the night of his vigil, all sympathies towards him have been both softened and invigorated. She now read his heart more accurately. She doubted not that the continual presence of Roger Chillingworth, the secret poison of his malignity infecting all the air about him, and his authorised interference as a physician with the minister's physical and spiritual infirmities, that these bad opportunities had been turned to a cruel purpose. By means of them, the sufferer's conscience had been kept in an irritated state, the tendency of which was not to cure by wholesome pain, but to disorganise and to corrupt his spiritual being. Its result, on earth, could hardly fail to be insanity, and hereafter, that eternal alienation from the good and true of which madness is perhaps the earthly type.
Such was the ruin to which she had brought the man once. Nay. Why should we not speak it? Still, so passionately loved. Hester felt that the sacrifice of the clergyman's good name, and death itself, as she had already told Roger Chillingworth, would have been infinitely preferable to the alternative which she had taken upon herself to choose. And now, rather than have this grievous wrong to confess, she would gladly have laid down on the forest leaves and died there at Arthur Dimmersdale's feet. Oh, Arthur, cried she, forgive me. In all things else I have striven to be true. Truth was the one virtue which I might have held fast and did not hold fast through all extremity, save when thy good, thy life, thy fame were put in question. Then I consented to a deception. But a lie is never good, even though death threaten on the other side. Dost thou not see what I would say? That old man, the physician, he whom they call Roger Chillingworth, he was my husband. The minister looked at her for an instant, with all that violence of passion, which, intermixed in more shapes than one with his higher, purer, softer qualities, was, in fact, the portion of him which the devil claimed, and through which he sought to win the rest. Never was there a blacker or fiercer frown than Hester now encountered. For the brief space that it lasted, it was a dark transfiguration. But his character had been so much enfeebled by suffering that even its lower energies were incapable of a more than temporary struggle. He sank down on the ground and buried his face in his hands. I might have known it, murmured he. I did know it. Was not the secret told me in the natural recoil of my heart at the first sight of him and as often as I have seen him since? Why did I not understand? Oh, Hester Prynne, thou little, little knowest all the horror of this thing and the shame, the indelicacy, the horrible ugliness of this exposure of a sick and guilty heart to the very eye that would gloat over it. Woman, woman, thou art accountable for this. I cannot forgive thee. Thou shalt forgive me, cried Hester, flinging herself on the fallen leaves beside him. Let God punish. Thou shalt forgive. With sudden and desperate tenderness, she threw her arms round him and pressed his head against her bosom, little caring though his cheek rested on the scarlet letter. He would have released himself, but strove in vain to do so. Hester would not set him free, lest he should look her sternly in the face. All the world had frowned upon her. For seven long years it had frowned upon this lonely woman, and still she bore it all, nor even once turned away her firm, sad eyes. Heaven, likewise, had frowned upon her, and she had not died. But the frown of this pale, weak, sinful, and sorrow-stricken man was what Hester could not bear and live. Wilt thou yet forgive me? she repeated over and over again. Wilt thou not frown? Wilt thou forgive? I do forgive you, Hester, replied the minister at length with a deep utterance out of an abyss of sadness, but no anger. I freely forgive you now. May God forgive us both. We are not, Hester, the worst sinners in the world. 
there is one worse than even the polluted priest. That old man's revenge has been blacker than my sin. He has violated, in cold blood, the sanctity of human heart. Thou and I, Hester, never did so. Never, never, whispered she. What we did had a consecration of its own. We felt it so. We said so to each other. Hast thou forgotten it? Hush, Hester, said Arthur Dimmesdale, rising from the ground. No, I have not forgotten. They sat down again, side by side, and hand clasped in hand on the mossy trunk of the fallen tree. Life had never brought them a gloomier hour. It was the point whither their pathways had been so long tending and darkening ever as it stole along. And yet it unclosed a charm that made them linger upon it and claim another and another and, after all, another moment. The forest was obscure around them and creaked with a blast that was passing through it. The boughs were tossing heavily above their heads, while one solemn old tree groaned dolefully to another, as if telling the sad story of the pair that sat beneath, or constrained to forebode evil to come. And yet they lingered. How dreary looked the forest track that led backward to the settlement, where Hester Prynne must take up again the burden of her ignominy, and the minister, the hollow mockery of his good name. So they lingered an instant longer. No golden light had ever been so precious as the gloom of this dark forest. Here, seen only by his eyes, the scarlet letter did not burn into the bosom of the fallen woman. Here, seen only by his eyes, the scarlet letter need not burn into the bosom of the fallen woman. Here, seen only by her eyes, Arthur Dimmesdale, false to God and man, might be, for one moment, true. He started at a thought that suddenly occurred to him. Hester, cried he, there is a new horror. Roger Chillingworth knows your purpose to reveal his true character. Will he continue, then, to keep our secret? What will now be the course of his revenge? There is a strange secrecy in his nature, replied Hester thoughtfully, and it has grown upon him by the hidden practices of his revenge. I deem it not likely that he will betray the secret. He will doubtless seek other means of satiating his dark passion. And I? How am I to live longer, breathing the same air with this deadly enemy? exclaimed Arthur Dimmesdale, shrinking within himself and pressing his hand nervously against his heart, a gesture that had grown involuntarily with him. Think for me, Hester. Thou art strong. Resolve for me. Thou must dwell no longer with this man, said Hester, slowly and firmly. Thy heart must be no longer under his evil eye. It were far worse than death, replied the minister. But how to avoid it? What choice remains to me? Shall I lie down again on these withered leaves where I cast myself when thou didst tell me what he was? Must I shrink down there and die at once? Alas, what ruin has befallen thee? said Hester, with tears gushing into her eyes. Wilt thou die for very weakness? 
There is no other cause. The judgment of God is on me, answered the conscience-stricken priest. It is too mighty for me to struggle with. Heaven would show mercy, rejoined Hester. Hast thou but the strength to take advantage of it? Be thou strong for me, answered he. Advise me what to do. Is the world then so narrow? exclaimed Hester Prynne, fixing her deep eyes on the ministers, and instinctively exercising a magnetic power over the spirit so shattered and subdued that it could hardly hold itself erect. Doth the universe lie within the compass of yonder town, which only a little time ago was but a leaf-strewn desert, as lonely as this around us? Whither leads yonder forest track? Backwards to the settlement, thou sayest, yes, but onward, too. Deeper it goes, and deeper into the wilderness, less plainly to be seen at every step, until some few miles hence the yellow leaves will show no vestige of the white man's tread. There thou art free. So brief a journey would bring thee from a world where thou hast been most wretched, to one where thou mayest still be happy. Is there not shade enough in all this boundless forest to hide thy heart from the gaze of Roger Chillingworth? Yes, Hester, but only under the fallen leaves, replied the minister with a sad smile. Then there is a broad pathway of the sea, continued Hester. It brought thee hither. If thou so choose, it would bear thee back again. In our native land, whether in some rural village or in vast London, or surely in Germany, in France, in pleasant Italy, thou wouldst be beyond his power and knowledge. And what hast thou to do with all these iron men and their opinions? They have kept thy better part in bondage too long already. It cannot be, listening as if we were called upon to realise a dream. I am powerless to go. Wretched and sinful as I am, I have had no other thought than to drag my earthly existence in the sphere where providence hath placed me. Lost as my own soul is, I would still do what I may for other human souls. I dare not quit my post, though an unfaithful sentinel, whose sure reward is death and dishonour, when his dreary watch shall come to an end. Thou art crushed under this seven years' weight of misery, replied Hester, fervently resolved to buoy him up with her own energy. But thou shalt leave it all behind thee. It shall not cumber thy steps as thou treadest along the forest path. Neither shalt thou freight the ship with it, if thou prefer to cross the sea. Leave this wreck and ruin here where it hath happened. Meddle no more with it. Begin all anew. Hast thou exhausted all possibility in the failure of this one trial? Not so. The future is yet full of trial and success. There is happiness to be enjoyed. There is good to be done. Exchange this false life of thine for a true one. Be, if thy spirit summon thee to such a mission, the teacher and apostle of the red men. Or, as is more thy nature, be a scholar and a sage among the wisest and most renowned of the cultivated world. Preach, write, act, do anything save to lie down and die. Give up this name of Arthur Dimsdale and make thyself another, a high one such as thou canst wear without fear or shame. Why shouldst thou tarry as much as one other day in the torments that have so gnawed into thy life? 
that have made thee feeble to will and to do, that will leave thee powerless even to repent. Up and away! Oh, Esther, cried Arthur Dimmersdale, in whose eyes a fitful light kindled by her enthusiasm flashed up and died away. Thou tellest of running a race to a man whose knees are tottering beneath him. I must die here. There is not the strength or courage left me to venture into the wide, strange, difficult world alone. It was the last expression of the despondency of a broken spirit. He lacked the energy to grasp the better fortune that seemed within his reach. He repeated the word. Alone, Hester. Thou shalt not go alone, answered she in a deep whisper. Then all was spoken. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe because there's more to come. And if you're listening on a podcast, please leave a review. It is the easiest way to help get this in front of as many people as possible. And reading them really makes my day. Once again, thank you for listening. And until next time, bye-bye.